Hello everyone, welcome back to the SPRC podcast. My name is Gala Rexa, I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the SPRC and I'm delighted to welcome Françoise Vergès at the SPRC and here on the podcast. Françoise Vergès is an activist and political theorist who has written on decolonial anti-racist feminism, slavery as a regime of extraction, the racial capital scene and anti-imperialism. She also curates exhibitions and decolonial workshops and performances with artists, refugees, and activists of color. The most recent one was at the Berlin Biennale in my actual hometown. And her most recent books in English include A Feminist Theory of Violence or Pluto Press, The Wombs of Women, Race, Capital, and Feminism out with Duke University Press, and A Decolonial Feminism also out with Pluto Press. Thank you so much for joining me today, Françoise. Thank you. Appreciate it. So I wanted to start our conversation by asking you a little bit about the broader questions that animate your recent work. So a feminist theory of violence, the wombs of women, and a decolonial feminism. I have read them almost, I think, chronologically, and I really felt that there's a theme running through all of them, or several themes, and that they really connect, pick up, questions that appeared earlier. So I was just wondering what are the major topics you wanted to address in these books and also maybe how they emerged from earlier work. I think perhaps to begin with, it was my interest in understanding the emergence of a strong state feminism and the return of white bourgeois feminism that really successful by the 2000s. And what happened? What happened? How was it made possible that suddenly state and international organizations were all talking about women's rights and even the business world, the corporate world? So why women's rights had become so much? In fact, not only, I will not say just manipulated, but really a politics. So that, I wanted to understand that. And from there, to explore different aspects or different uh, example that will allow me to analyze it and to clarify that. Then a second thing also was the strong, really, emergence of decolonial feminist movement around the world in South America, the incredible courage and strength of the feminist movement there, the women's strike, the fight for against femicide and for abortion rights. But also, of course, Black Lives Matter, connected with Palestinian Lives Matter and all those. Also, still paying attention to the anti-imperialist, anti-racist movement, not saying that disappeared like we sometimes hear around. And uh, finally, I would say to pay attention beside this movement to also the need expressed in my encounter with younger generation for history, for, okay, give us the background, what happened before, because we don't get it at school, at the university. So this importance of transmission and this duty, in fact, for the older generation <laughs> to, to do that work, very important for me today to, to engage into that work of transmission. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about that turn that you mentioned to look really at the state level? So what you're saying in your most recent book is really 
we don't need to look specifically at the individual man or the individual person who rapes or who harasses or who is violent in any way, but you sort of shift the discourse to look at a broader level, to look at the state level, to contest and to challenge that turn to carcerality in recent different sorts of feminism that you discuss. Yes, you're right. I mean, how do we answer to the incredible brutality and cruelty of in the world today? And the turn to you're not what the state by some, by some feminist. Give us protection, please. And give us laws, give us more police, give us more like possibility to arrest men and put them in jail. And what was happening? That was one thing, but also what is the cruelty and the meanness today different than what happened before? And in a recent exchange with Christina Sharp, and she was asking me how I was doing, I say, as best as I can in these cruel times, but when have they not been cruel? And she answered, and she answered, yes, they always have been cruel, but now more is unmasked and a lot is compounded. And it made me think, because effectively I had this feeling that it was like coming from everywhere, the assault coming from everywhere. There was not a place in the world that was not an assault on woman body, on migrant, on refugee, on black people, on, you know, colonized in, in occupation. I mean, there, there was like suddenly an incredible, really setback, an incredible assault. So what could explain that? Because effectively, cruelty is not new and brutality is not new, but what could I expect? And for me, it was the unleashing of capitalism uh, gone wild, if, we, if I may say, that it needs to extract constantly. It needs to colonize. It needs to exploit. It needs to dispossess, to leave. I mean, it's not just that, okay, it has to produce some goods and produce some desire for us to consume this good. No, it needs, I mean, it's, this kind of, of absolutely, it's inseparable and inseparable from racism and therefore with sexism. I wanted also to make, a, again, the distinction in patriarchy, that patriarchy has been rationalized. And I'm not the first one to say that, but everyone understands that you can be even a tyrant at home, but when you go out, you're a brown man, a black man, an indigenous man, and therefore you will not be a patriarch in at the same level than the white patriarch. Secondly, I mean, we have learned from the woman who came before us that we have, a, we have to do two works, of course, two struggle to fight for autonomy, but also not against the men in our community. Our brothers, our son, our companion, our husband, our father, they are also colonized, racialized, exploited. And these forming class cannot disappear Anti-imperialism cannot disappear in the name of women being the victim. And this binarism, all women are victim and all men are made brutal, did not, for me, absolutely erase an incredible history of brutality against men, against the body of brown and black and indigenous men. And so that view, that feminism view, seems to me totally, of course, abstract, but also connected with the philosophy of liberal rights, of individual rights, and also their defense of prison is for me astonishing. For me, anyone who had been in a prison once cannot wish that to anyone.
And even for me, my enemies, where to put them is also a question. So, because anyone who has been in jail knows that is absolutely the place that destroys, that crush, that that is a terrible, it's cruelty. And last, of course, the state, I mean, the demand addressed to the state to protect, I mean, reinforcing police, reinforcing surveillance, which are all patriarchal white or bourgeois, that white bourgeois, you know, places. I mean, we see everywhere that this structure, this institution, do not protect women. So all this question led to me because there is really a reaction that is emerging. And also the last thing, it's like, more and more demand for laws of protection, and in fact, more and more vulnerability and precarity fabricated against entire community and people. So that was not for me a paradox. It in fact say, what were the lives that deserve to be protected and those who can be, that do not only do not deserve to be protected, but even deserve to be sent to jail and criminalized. Even the children being criminalized, the black, brown, indigenous children, Roma children being criminalized, uh, Palestinian children being criminalized. At the same time, there was so much work about protection of childhood and really making the the world of children better and having the best education. So that, for me, again, is not a paradox. It's, in fact, the politics of capitalism. Yeah, and you really show that in the book. I would have two follow-up questions on that. Maybe first, because you just mentioned it, the idea of protection. Because you talk about it a lot in the book, and it's really a, an idea that's been picked up by like liberal white feminism. But it, it hinges so much on the history of enslavement, colonialism, imperialism. And I think the ways in which it shows up in the nation-state form It also is linked to citizenship, to recognition, to all these liberal concepts of like access and representation. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this conceptualization of who deserves to be protected, in what terms this shows up in our societies, and maybe also how your work can help us understand a different politics of protection that doesn't focus on vulnerability and weakness. Exactly, yes. I mean, first, of course, I, I wrote that all society organized form of protection for the sick, for the babies, for the elderly. Everyone understands, not weakness, but the need for care, the need for help at one point, non-valid, I mean, all this. So, but it's conceived as... Uh, organizing the a social life that is effectively not based in individualism and the stronger, the better I am, right? That was important to say. So I was not advocating no protection because, in fact, that would be everyone who is, right? And is, yeah. mostly, right? It was a, the way in which the protection was captured entirely by the state is an evolution that effectively to which feminists contributed. And so on the one hand, you could have laws of social protection that we will, that in fact, we want to preserve in terms of daycare, maternity leave. I mean, we could call them laws of protection because effectively they protect against incredible precarity. 
right there. But they have been obtained because of Stronger. And we should, so we should be careful when we talk about when we attack protection by the state, because it could allow the state to say, oh, we're going to, then we could attack all this law, which is happening here in the UK, and it's happening in France and everywhere else in Europe, and of course in the United States. That attacking this, because then you can take care of yourself. So that's one thing. Then the other thing is how protection was captured by the state, in fact, to attack brown, black, indigenous people, especially black and brown women, and that to make, effectively, to attack working condition, housing. I mean, all of this was to attack that, right? And so the protection became militarized. And when I say that, it's not just because in the end of the army, but militarized in the sense of this is a war. Right, of, of the vocabulary of war against the body of the people who are threatening the nation, the body of the nation, and our women and our children. So how this discourse and, in fact, politics reinforce a xenophobic nationalism, white nationalism, to which, in fact, some people of color can participate, as we have that we have seen recently in this country with the different Minister of Interior. So what I mean by that protection, if we need to reappropriate protection to take it from this different end, grabbing it to in fact enforce individualism and one for one, one for oneself, and reappropriate it as effective politics that will be anti-racist and anti-capitalist, that will both fight against you still to protect the rights of workers, women and men and others, but also to reinforce a form of solidarity. So solidarity as a form of protection or protection as solidarity, I always say, because solidarity is also, protection is not just physical protection, it's also mental, that you know that if something happened to you, your friend will say, or your companion or your comrade will come to you, that you will feel, and that's also a form of protection against the state. So you are in a union, you are attacked, your comrades will come and protect you. You are in a collective, a women's collective, your friend will come. And that, so it, again, it's like to clarify protection that the state has been able to transform into one, giving it just one meaning only. The police will come, will protect you, and will send the man who is responsible for attacking you to jail. So it's very important because otherwise, if we don't fight for this form of protection, we will be really in the kind of society in which well, people will arm themselves and even what we are seeing here and there, an attack. So it's very important to, to bring back solidarity, care, collectivity, community. Yeah, I agree. I really think that is a way a beautiful way to think about it, like community and solidarity as a form of protection that is needed, of course. And I think I have a similar question for later on, but I think what's so difficult in, in this book and in our world is how to talk about violence and how to describe it and how to analyze it. And I, what I really found interesting is that you used Sayag Valencia's term of gore capitalism. I felt like it had a short life people were using it for a year or for two but then disappeared a little bit from like leftist discourse and it's such an interesting term to really understand how 
violence is a form of governance and how death and violence is a commodity, has become a commodity. So I was wondering for those who are not familiar with the term as much, if you could talk a little bit about how you use it, how it's maybe needed to refine the term of racial capitalism and our analysis of capital more broadly. Yeah, what I thought, I, th uh, I found interesting in Saya Valencia's uh, work was to say that capitalism, the violence, is not just killing, it's dismembering, throwing the body on a pile of garbage. And there is, beside killing, an absolute will to dishumanize even the corpse, even the dead body. And that there is some form of capitalism is becoming like vengeful. And I think in response to what is being afraid of, of this in fact, global mobilization, because it's not, of course, it's everywhere, but there is a global resistance and we can see it and connect so many things. And the fear of that, the incredible fear, the punishment, and we will, capital say, we will punish you and very heavily. So this compounding, as to, to borrow again from Christian, of cruelty and brutality, we have to define it, to clarify it, and not be afraid of it and be able to look really at the monster and not be petrified and say, okay, we see the incredible, how you destroy the world, plant, animal, river, forest, seas, ocean, mountain, everything. But that metaphor of the monster cannot become either something that becomes abstract. It's very concrete. It's very concrete, and it's this concreteness that we have also to grab on, and then to answer in a material, make a materialist analysis of what's happening. This is not just this is not a movie, a science fiction movie with like some kind of like a, one of the stupid movie about like all powerful monster. No, that monster is a social force, It's socially constructed, so it can be it can be dismantled. This is not coming from whatever you know, part of the universe. It's not an alien force. And I think Sayak, with this proposition of gold capitalism, she was picking up on something like that. And we have to show that it's not enough to put people in jail at the border of Mexico. You, the state will separate children, even two-year-old, from their parents. It has to go further. In Palestine, the Israel force will not just destroy the house. It will bring the family to see the destruction of their home and everything that is invested in that. But there was an incredible constant construction of these people are a threat, is existential threat. And that will lead to more effectively to, the, to this need, as I say, not only to kill, but to perform of profanation of the body. Yeah. And that was a Sayak Valencia show in World Capitalism. And I thought it was important, again, as I say, not to be afraid, not to be petrified by, oh my God, this is horrible. How are people capable of that? Yes, of course they are capable of that because this is what's happening every day. The violence is also the destruction of the world, of the condition of living for millions of people, billions of people. And that is incredible violence. It's incredible violence. The fact that people cannot, I mean, so many people can no longer breathe because the air is polluted and contaminated. 
breathing, which is the first need of the human being and also the plant and animal and even the water. It's being forbidden. So we have to measure the extent to which capitalism is ready to unleash its, its brutality. And for the few to imagine themselves living in enclave, protected, and this is an imperialist fascist protection, formal protection, to be protected from the masses that, they, that could die of hunger and contaminated water or air pollution. We really have to have the image of that, the world that is being constructed as we talk. Yeah. I think what's really instructive in your work is the question that you ask, and it relates to what you just said about the who cleans the world and what does this question tell us about space and bodies. So whose body is made disposable, whose body is exhausted, and at the same time, whose body is made the perfect neoliberal subject and the perfect neoliberal body in the perfect clean space. And I think that's really... Why your analysis is so important because it's overarching. It, it talks about environmental pollution. It talks about social reproduction. It talks about the planetary state and its entanglement with coloniality and the afterlife of slavery. So could you talk a bit more about these extractive mechanisms that really are linked on the local and on the global? When I started to be interested in the strike of a black cleaning woman or brown women cleaning woman in Paris cleaning a railway station or hotel, because I thought that this were really decolonial anti-racist feminist struggle, not the blah, blah, on the radio or whatever. This were on the ground and they had to overcome so many obstacles to do that. And so when I was sometimes hearing, you know, so, well, you know, middle class, young woman complaining about what can we do? I say, if this woman can organize, well, please, you're right. They can read, they can understand, they can and really formulate in a very clear way what is their expedition as women, as black, and as workers. So, please. So that, for me, is really at the heart. And the cleaning things is basically because I, I felt that there is a, such a naturalization of cleaning that you arrive, for example, in this room or everywhere you arrive, in a bookstore, in, in a clinic, in, at the daycare center, whatever, it's clean. And for me, it's so deeply that the society will not function without that cleaning. That it's not about just garbage not pick up in the street when it, a strike happens, it's like leading to a total panic. It will not be possible. Right. And I connected to this, what I call this economy of exhaustion, that for me is connected with capitalism. So it's not just extraction in the fact that you pick up and so you steal, it's your exhaust. I mean, capital exhausts the soul and the body of brown and black people, indigenous people, exhausts in the fact that it, it sucks the life force out of it. And we do know that what we it's called the life expectancy, is shorter for all this community than for white people. It's much shorter, and even among workers, white workers. So there is something here that is very important. And when I say, because the cleaning body is exhausted, but also has to deal with chemicals, has to deal with incredible physical effort, that body is made possible the comfortable life 
of the healthy body that can live in a nice uh, apartment, be protected from virus and everything. Because behind that clean, healthy body, there is a body whose work is making that possible and whose exhaustion makes that possible. So the last things I wanted to say, I think that clinic is also a decolonial and feminist question because we will always need cleaning. We're not going to use robot, right? Okay. So for me, going, of course, we have to fight for better condition of work, for the possibility of unionize and all this. But then when we imagine that post-racist, post-capitalist, post-imperialist, post-colonial in the real sense of post-colonial world, we will, how will we clean? It goes again to what you asked me, again, the protection. Of, so we have also to have this, to imagine, to, to put ourselves in this effort of imagination of what people before us, men and women before us, say, okay, this is a dream towards which we have to, for which we have to fight. Freedom for the enslaved, independence for the colonized, rights for women, rights for gays. What is our dream? So that dream is, of course, need imagination. And so how will we clean our world? Yeah. Our post-racist world. Yeah. And uh, because this no longer be organized like that. So for me, it's also after that to do that work of imagination. Yeah. And I think that's so connected to the family, to how we understand care, how we understand kinship, how we understand populations, even demography, and how all of these also are used. And we can see it at present so strongly how these are used by conservative or right-wing parties or movements globally. And at the same time, how your work or work of Sophie Lewis, for instance, to abolish the family, imagines new ways of comradeship, of being together, of new ways of thinking of how to do social and biological reproduction. And I've noticed, obviously, in your most recent book also, the children, they figure really prominently in that work as subjects that we have to think about. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how you connect all of these like ideologies and how they're so ingrained in right-wing political thinking, but also how we can think about them and organize them in a different way. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very important. As we know, slavery forbade kinship, the creation of kinship, making kin, making family. So we have to rethink family outside of patriarchal, but we cannot just condemn family the way some white families have said. We know our family are very important in struggle and in resistance. And we, of course, that is not to deny conflict within that structure, but nonetheless, you know, it's also, I mean, black feminists have shown that, but also feminists in the global south, that for a lot of people, men and women and children, going to the family, even if it's nonetheless a form of refuge, from the incredible racism and sexism or transphobia that are confronted us. Uh, effectively, it's imagination of making kin, but at the same time, what will happen with children? We need care, effectively, when they are babies. Right? You, you don't leave a baby like that. So how will we organize that? So that this connection, bringing back this kind of study also, I think is very important. 
to realize, to rethink what are the link and the love that we need as human beings. So it's not just an organization, a mechanical organization. How do we rethink love and affection with all the problems we know that <laughs> with these two things? But how, because we need, as human beings, we need to be loved and to love. We need to be, to feel that there is a, an, yes, a, a world of affect that we live in a world. So children, the, for me, the way in which the state has criminalized some children is for me also so embodies so much the fact that the state the, and capitalist state still want to forbid making kin and making family to some families. And this means that what is even though, as you were saying, white wing always talking about family and family. But then there are some family that do, should not be allowed to develop and to live. Yeah, I think it sort of smoothly it runs into my next question, which is connected to the institution. And we're here at University College London, which was foundational in developing eugenist thinking, which then again is connected to which sort of family and which sort of life and which sort of kinship is enabled by state violence and which is prohibited and destroyed. And I know that you've talked about that before and also your activism is about that. So how do we think about the institutions such as the university and its embeddedness in state violence and in surveillance? And you talk about that in, in your recent book as well where you speak about an experience that you had at, I think, a North American university campus. So how do we think about that? How do we approach the institution and live in it, but also beyond it? Yeah, it's a very important question because it's a question for so many of us and so many of people around. What do we do in an institution that whose structure is, in fact, to crush us, or to crush our thinking, but at the same time to extract it? For its for making more benefits. I don't think I, I don't think there is an easy solution or a solution that would be all comfortable. We have to live with the contradiction. We have to live with the pain sometimes of working. And the way to protect ourselves, to go back to protection, is to unionize, create collective, and live through that contradiction. Because for now, I I remember I have friends who say let's we should not even pay attention to the institution to bad and so on. But I say, but kids are entering this institution every day. I cannot let them like alone confronting that. If they ask me, I cannot tell them, oh, you should not go to the university. Me, who has a, has a PhD from Berkeley University, I'm going to tell people, no, you don't need that, please, and so on and so forth, right? Easily like that. Whereas I can present myself as a person with a PhD. So to overcome that pain or to overcome also a sense of powerlessness, also, which is very, because institutions create a sense of powerlessness. So you give up or you just, you accept your condition because it's too much, it's too complicated, it's too heavy. And to navigate through that, I will say in an institution, you are in front of a position, let's say at the university here, so you are in front of students, you got to help them navigate through that institution. If one well, student comes to you and say, what can I do? I, I'm black, I'm gay, I'm queer, I, I'm Muslim, I'm veiled, whatever, I have a, a hijab and all this, you have, this is your duty. So we have to write about it, even if it has been written about it before, we have to speak about it, and we have to make to say, yeah, we know what you're living. 
We have been through that and we're going to help you to navigate. And we have to help those who write master thesis or PhD thesis and we cannot find support here. We have to support to help them through research, telling them. This is effectively a work of solidarity, active solidarity. It's active and it's a lot of work and I understand that we sometimes can be exhausted, but that's what we have to do because people before us did it for us. So we have to do that. That is the only way to survive. Yeah. I want to end on the note of revolutionary love and joy because you also end the book on that note. And I think you mentioned it a few times through the conversation. It's so important to not just analyze and criticize, but to imagine what's next and to plan for what's next. So what is your, how do you define or how do you think about peace in your project of a decolonial feminism? I mean, but first I will say that we have also to absolutely nourish friendship. Friendship is for me absolutely a source of incredible importance. Love, of course, but friendship is love. We have to have friends. We have to cook for them. We have to, to have fun, to go dancing, singing, walking in the forest, whatever, laughing about some kind of, I don't know, the love story of one of them. I mean, we have to have this moment of lightness. That's very important. I love to cook. I really love that. And I, I spend hours to cook for friends. I want, when they arrive, that they're going to have an incredible dinner that they would remember. So it's not going to be just like one dish, but it's going to be like five appetizers and three things after and this and that and this and the water will be perfumed with this and so on and it will be the best wine you know, for those who drink wine. It's very important because this is what I can do. I cannot sing, piano, whatever. I cannot remember a poem to, to be able to you know, say it loudly, but I can do that. So this I do. And that's part of, for me, very important. So the question of, of love, the source of resistance, but in a very deep way, is absolutely essential. Because this capital cannot take this away. Right, And the way in which, for instance, people who go together to strike or to organize a collective in the neighborhood, and the way they, in which they say, we are fine sisters and brothers, I have a new family, say something about that creation, something that gives them strength, hope, and love. And that love is for me. So building an utopia, emancipatory utopia, is extremely important. And this is why, for me, the world, the work, sorry, the work of imagination is essential today. So this is, for me, a very essential work because they cannot colonize that dream. And we have to have it. And I think we have to clarify it because they, the capital has, has really colonized even, they want to colonize even imagination. And the production of film about you, like superpower, is part of that. Like, Let's invest in some kind of superpower where they're going to save us from the catastrophe in which they are taking us. And for me, it's like, no, that will not be some superpower. It will be us. We are the superpower and we have to be clear about that. And in fact, they are afraid of us. We should not forget that. And that, and effectively, we will be strong together. This struggle will not go without loss and real loss and setback and defeat. But... What has been the struggle, if not also that? 
but also with the beauty of this memory of people who dare, women and men who dare to, to walk in the street and to say, no, that will not be the work, what we want. And all that, all the daily resistance, you will not erase us. You will not erase us. And that, we, you want us to disappear, we will not disappear. And that is for me love also. I think that's a good note to end the podcast on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization. Or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC.